0: Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We will be speaking this morning on the heels of the resurrection, our Resurrection Sunday. In fact, our title this morning is titled, The Power of a Resurrected Life. So if you want to turn your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3, that'd be a good thing to do. Notice the first phrase that he uses here in verse 10. He says, that I may know. That is a very important phrase because in the Greek language that is used here, it's using the normal word gnosis for knowledge. But he's using here an articular genitive um, infinitive. Did you guys, were you blessed by that? I felt warm and the reception how you, I should use that more often. Well, anyway... Let me tell you what that means. If Paul were standing right here, right now with us, this is what he would say. I want to know with a deep, passionate, strong desire, I want to know him. Now, there's a couple of more things we need to talk about as far as grammar is concerned. This infinitive is connected to three other words here. It's connected to the word him. It's connected to the word power. It's connected to the word fellowship. And so there are three things that we want to cover about this resurrected life this morning. Knowing him, knowing the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings. Let's look at knowing him. That phrase, once again, that I may know him. Think for a moment about all the famous people that you know and admire. We all know people in the media or on television or somehow some type of maybe an actor or a singer or a sports figure or even politicians. I mean, really, even politicians can be admired. (laughs) But we admire them for what they're able to do. And what this does is it it prompts a desire within us to know that person. We begin to look at interviews On the television, we read interviews in magazines, maybe books about the person. Maybe we'll go online to find everything we can about this person because we want to know them. You may even dream about this person. Years ago, I was really enamored with Bob Dylan. And so it got to the point of saturation with all of the books that i had been reading that I began to dream about him. And in one particular dream, I was in his house and he looked at me and he said, what are you doing here? I said, well, I'm a fan. We're friends, right? This is a dream. And he said, get out of my house. And, you know, ever since then, I don't even listen to Bob Dylan anymore. (laughs) I'm offended. The fact is that your life has been touched by this person. And what it's done is caused you to want a relationship with said person. And here's the point. A life that has been raised from the dead exhibits an intense desire for personal, experiential knowledge of this person that has given you life. I have a doctor, and I will call him a very good doctor. He goes to this fellowship. And for many years, I have suffered, I mean suffered with allergies. And and let me just say, let me give you a hint of what's going on right now. I'm breathing freely. And every time this year, usually my doctor comes along and he has the best medicine in the world for my allergies. And he'll give me a big injection and I feel great. And because of that, I don't want to call him on the cell phone all the time and say, hey, how are you doing? What are you doing today? What do you like? Because I want to get him something maybe he likes. There's a sense of thankfulness for what they've done for you. Knowing Jesus... Gives us a clear view, not only of what he has done, but a clear view of our past. Look with me just back up a few verses at verse 7 in Philippians 3. He says, Paul speaking here, What things were gained to me, these I have counted lost for Christ. You know, one of the problems that we have about the past is we forget really what the past looks like. We get far enough away from it and we tend to reminisce and look back at things with beautiful rose-colored glasses. But what we really need is the ability to put on the right lens to see correctly into the past. And that's what this knowledge of Jesus, knowledge of the Holy One, knowledge of the perfect One does for us. It's like a bright light shining and we're able to see clearly not only who we were, but who we are now. This intense desire causes us to view our previous accomplishments, and personal assets as a loss in comparison to knowing him. It's as if to say, once this moment came in the life of Paul, he said, Wow, what have I been doing all this time? I thought I was doing something. I thought I had some accomplishments. But all of a sudden, it's like I wasn't doing anything at all. I've been wasting my time. Now, not only does he give us a clear view of our past, but knowing Jesus changes our values. Look with me at verse 8. He said, Yet indeed I count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. This is one of my favorite passages because it contains one of the coolest Greek words ever penned. It's the word skubalon. I like it because it sounds like scuba and then move along. It sort of reminds me of somebody swimming along. Just scuba along, buddy. But that's not the case. In fact, it has a very strong, intense meaning. It's usually translated trash or rubbish. But what it really means is refuse or dung. How many of you here have worked on a ranch or been around horses or cows? It seems that these particular beautiful and some tasty animals um, <laughs> produce a lot of what we would call scuba In fact, many years working in the stalls, I found myself scooping along right behind them. <laughs> but that's the picture that he's giving us. But you can't stop there. You also have to let the, the aroma and the the smell sort of wafted up also because it gives you a full picture. It's as if to say that when I met Jesus, it's like everything that I had accomplished and everything I had seemed like dung. You can't be more picturesque than that. How many of you here watch TV? We're in church, confess, right now. Okay. Those of you who have confessed, I'm glad you did because you give telltale signs. I know the television watchers here because you stare like this, and then if I say something you don't like, you start doing your hand like that. I don't know. It's inadvertently, but you do it. You probably want to watch that. Well, I like watching this show on uh, TLC, The Learning Channel. And uh, it has a couple of British ladies who go into a messy house and they clean things up. And these houses look sort of okay until they pop out their rubber gloves, they get their lights out and their little black lights, and they go in every nook and cranny. And as they do, oh, things look so much different in the light. Gross. And that's really what he's saying here. You know, Jesus is the light of the world. Metaphorically, He comes in as this bright and shining light into a dark and perverse world. And as He comes into the scene, into the situation, He shines into the darkness. And things that formerly looked okay and pretty good are no longer looking so great. They are dirty and filthy. However, knowing Jesus... Paul says, has real value. Over in Colossians 2, verse 3, I love these words. He says, "...in whom," speaking of Christ, "...are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge." It said that everything that mankind has been looking for, everything that man has sought after, is found hidden in Christ. All of the treasures, everything that is good, everything that is wonderful, pure, and hopeful, is found in Jesus Christ. Knowing him. True value. Then he says he wants to not only know him, but know the power of his resurrection. Look with me at the middle part of this verse in chapter 3. Verse 10, he says, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. The word that is used here in Greek for power is dunamis. And it speaks about the ability to actuate or actually do a task. To have power to do something. It's like around my house, uh, whenever something heavy needs to be lifted, you know, my wife calls me. And I'm like, hey, no problem. (laughs) I got dunamis one right here and dunamis two. Just point me in the right direction. I don't know why I said that. That was terrible. (laughs) But knowing him... It takes us from a life of scubalon and mess to something brand new and beautiful. Knowing the power of Jesus' resurrection gives us hope in a new life. In fact, we do not live in the shadow of the past, but in the warming light of a future with God. I read this little poem this week. I'd like to read to you. It says, I wish there were some wonderful place called the land of beginning again where all our past mistakes and heartaches and all our poor selfish grief could be dropped like a shabby old coat at the door never to be put on again. That's that new life. That's our new sentiment. Well, there's three things That this power does for the believer. First in Colossians chapter 3 verse 1. We are told that we were raised with Christ. This power first of all. Raises us up with Jesus. It gives the image of a guy who is sitting in a casket or in a grave. And someone reaches down. Not of his own ability. But someone else reaches down and pulls them up. That's the first thing. Secondly. We are are told in Ephesians chapter 2 that we are made alive. In verse 5 and 6, we hear these words. He has made us alive together with Christ and raised us up together. Not only are we pulled out of the grave, but we're given some life to live. We're not going to be zombies who just walk around, but we're, we're given real life, real ability. And then thirdly... In Romans chapter 6, verse 4, we are raised to walk in a new way. He says, therefore, we were buried with him through the baptism unto death, that just as Christ has raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in newness of life. So we're pulled out of the grave, we're energized, we can breathe again, and then he gives us the ability to walk. Now, the word that's used here for walk in the Greek is peripateo. It doesn't mean just the ability to be ambulatory. It's speaking of a person's ability to live in a new manner. That is, there's a new power and ability to live differently than you had previously lived. You know, I think of that beautiful old story of Pinocchio. Now, whenever you think of Pinocchio, you think of the nose boom, growing every time he tells a lie. But the real purpose of Pinocchio was that... He was a wooden boy who always wanted to be a real boy. And in the end, you hear that phrase, I'm a real boy, I'm a real boy. And in a sense, we've been raised up to be real people. I'm a real believer. I'm a real person energized by the things of God. Knowing Jesus and the power of his resurrection also gives us confidence in his abilities and not our own. Look with me at verse 4 of this same chapter. Paul says, Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks that he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. And if anybody had confidence in the flesh, it should be Paul. He was one of the best religious people who had ever lived. Listen to his pedigree as we move on in verse 5. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. A Hebrew of Hebrews concerning the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. I would say out of anybody living, and especially in this room, none of us here by our own flesh would ever have that good of a pedigree in religion. But here's the, here's the note. And here's what we need to know about this. It is hard. Impossible. I might add. To live the Christian life. A godly life. By your own power. And your own strength. I have to tell you. I've been a pastor for 13 years. And one of the surprising elements of that. Is what I see really. In the Christian life. What people struggle with. You know what people struggle with most? It's trying to live the Christian life. And here's the problem. You come to Christ, you receive His salvation, His forgiveness, but you try to live out this holy life by your old way of doing things. Your old way of thinking by the power and the knowledge and the things that you've done in the past. And everyone along that road gets totally frustrated. In fact, I had my moment when I was a kid. I was 17 years old. I grew up in a Christian family. I grew up in a pastor's home and it was really a great place to grow up. Fond memories. A good place, good church. But for some reason I was missing it. And one evening in the Sunday evening Bible study, I remember getting up, looking at my teacher and just walking out and I left the church and I started walking. And I began to walk outside the city and I was walking for miles and I was watching the sunset. And as the sun was setting, I just began to cry and I said, Lord, I'm so tired of this. I know that you love me and I know that you know that I love you, but this Christian life is breaking my back. I can't do it. Every time I try to do something, every time I get a few steps and then it just seems like I blow it and I, and I can't do it, I think it would be better, Lord, if you would just let me leave the faith, because I'm tired of embarrassing you. Now, praise God, he didn't answer that prayer. In fact, it wasn't just a day or so I had a brother come up alongside me and said, What you moping around about? You get your Bible out and read it, boy. No doubt the words of a scholar. But he was right. Because I saw it was justification by faith, by grace, God's goodness, His ability, His power. And that's what Paul's talking about right here. Here's the answer. The answer is simply this. Abide and surrender. Obey and rest. Living in God, surrendering to His power, saying, Okay, it's your power, it's your dunamis, it's your abilities, and I'm going to rest in that. You know, there's an old phrase that people use a lot. And I think it's been abused. But it's, it goes like this. Let go and let God. In the sense that, that pictures the idea of just sort of falling back into his arms and allowing him to be the great, powerful God that he is and allow him to change you and to mold you and to make you into that person you've always wanted to be. That's his desire. That's his power. And that's what Paul understood when he said, that's what I want to know. I want to be a part of that. Now, letting go and letting God doesn't mean that you're just going, I'm just going to let go, brother. No, you need to let go and let God. And that means simply this, that you need to be obedient as a willing participant. As God moves and he begins to change, you say, yes, Lord, yes, sir, I will do it. I will follow after you. But you don't have to engage it. You just simply obey and allow him to do his work. Galatians two twenty says, "I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ in me. It lets us know first of all it 's christ 's work and then in Corinthians chapter second Corinthians chapter four verse seven, he says, But we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us, so it 's god 's work, and it 's god's glory. but guess who gets the good. Guess who gains from all of this? You and I. Yes, it's his work. Yes, he gains the glory, but who are the benefactors? Us. We benefit from his work. All right. Not only does he want us to know him and know the power of his resurrection, but look at toward the end of this verse in Philippians chapter three, verse 10, that I might know the fellowship of his sufferings, you know this life has produced a lot of suffering for mankind, hasn't it? I mean, we can think of wars, and now that we have CNN and Fox News and and the internet, we can click on, turn on any moment of the day, and find out what form of depravity and destruction exists anywhere at any point in time on the globe, and it's depressing, isn't it? I think of wars, the suffering that comes upon others, famine. You have those who suffer needlessly because of their own actions. And then you have those who suffer for a cause like missionaries. We have missionaries visiting us from Uganda, Justin Beverly Rich. And I don't know how many times they've contacted malaria and all the stories they tell us of people who are suffering right now for the sake of the gospel. But Paul here says he sees that... It is a high calling and a privilege to suffer for the sake of Jesus. As he goes on to say in the end of this verse, being conformed to the image of his death. Yes, we are alive in Jesus, but dead to the things of the world. Now, why would he say that? He says that because he says that I may have fellowship with his sufferings. I don't know about you, but I have never prayed for suffering. Never been on my list. I may have prayed for better looks, more hair, boundless resources, money running out of my ears. But I've never prayed for suffering. Here's the key to this. It's the word fellowship. We use it all through the New Testament. And it's always connected with communion and relationship with the Lord and relationship with each other. It's a sense of community and loving each other and connectedness. And Paul says, I want to have fellowship even with his sufferings. In the sense that because the world has rejected him and I value him so much and I saw how much he suffered, I want to fellowship with him even at the deepest part of who he is and what he has done. Now, how does the Christian suffer? A few examples. The Christian suffers for the truth and the truth of the gospel. This world lives in opposition to the things of God. It just It just does. You also suffer for righteousness sake. In the sense that you may have to stand up from time to time for Jesus and his truth. And as you do, you may be met with fierce opposition and persecution and suffering. But most of all, we suffer for his name's sake. Being connected to him in this life that is very wicked and opposed to God. You know... You can talk about religion all you want and your friends are okay. But when you bring up the name of Jesus, it becomes this dividing line that sort of shut things off, doesn't it? Have you guys experienced that? If you really bring up Jesus, it becomes a dividing line where someone says, Shut up. I don't want to hear any more of that. Now, with all this said, some of you may be thinking, Well, what about blessing? Is Paul just going to say that everything in the Christian life is suffering? No, all of us who are connected to Jesus are blessed on a daily basis. I'm blessed every day. We may be blessed financially. We may be blessed with physical health. But internally and in all ways, we're continually blessed because he loves us and he pours out his blessings upon his people. This doesn't negate this fact. If you are blessed on a daily basis, we've been given a stewardship to care for the things that He's given us, to use them for His glory. It's a great responsibility. But here's the truth that we cannot avoid. In 2 Timothy 3, he says, All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. He doesn't say maybe. He says, If you desire to live godly in Christ you will suffer persecution. So where's the point? Here's the point. Suffering for Jesus is a blessing. It's easy to receive other blessings. Oh, thank you, Lord. It's nice. It's a blessing. But this, Paul says is a blessing that I would want to attain to. Lord, allow me just enough of knowledge of you and relationship to you to be counted worthy, to be persecuted, and to suffer for your namesake. That's love. That's love that says, I'm willing to lay my life on the line. I don't care what my friends think. I don't care because I want to be connected with Jesus. As controversial as he is, I'm here to stand with him. That's what Paul's saying. And it's a blessing. It's a real blessing. But before we go away from here, I have to bring up something. Not everyone here is suffering for the name of Christ. But many of you here are suffering because of things that are in your life right now. It could be alcohol and drugs. It could be gambling It could be a lack of self-control. Maybe bitterness and anger and hatred for a person. It could be lust and pornography. And you say, wait a minute, Dave. Now these are kind of tough things. I'm bringing them up because God wants us to be free. If we're going to suffer, hey, let's suffer for the sake of righteousness. But many of you, if you could pull me aside into a room privately, would say, Dave, you just spoke to my heart. I'm not free. And at night, when I go to bed, I, I, you know, I may think these things bring some type of fulfillment. But when I go to bed at night, I'm suffering in anguish because I know that I'm bound to them. Hey, that stuff is the stuff that graves are made of. But Jesus has the power of his resurrection to pull us out of that grave and to raise us up and give us a life that none of us could ever even imagine on our own. And when it's done, there's another resurrection coming. The resurrection where Jesus calls us home to be with him. And that's where I want to be. That's where Paul is right now, by the way. He's with the Lord.